What if all of these vulnerabilities that you're trying to hide away are actually your superpowers? I don't lose anything by being honest and being open. I gained community and I literally regained my soul. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Gabrielle Union. We've followed her acting journey since her breakout roles in 10 Things I Hate About You and Bring It On. And over 20 years later, she's added author and advocate to her resume as well. Her latest book, You Got Anything Stronger, is out now. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining us. We are big fans. Really excited to have this conversation. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we get into the conversation, we want to do a little warm-up lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. You ready? Mm-hmm. First job on your resume? Sunglass hut. Worst job on your resume? Sunglass hut. Were you like a salesperson or were you doing like eye exams? Just selling sunglasses I knew nothing about. Didn't even wear sunglasses. (laughs) Are you a meeting person or email? Text. Yeah, we we agree with that. We're we're actually the same. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. What's the last show you binge watched? The chair. Oh, is it good? Oh, it is. It is. I mean, I'm a Sandra Oh fan. I am too. I've been waiting for Killing Eve to come back. What is a secret hobby or skill that people would be surprised you have? Being able to recite all of the words in Greece. Oh, do you want to start? Yeah. Chachi de Gregorio, the best dancer at St. Bernadette's with the worst reputation. Reputation. (laughs) Carly also is completely obsessed. So I don't think I ever would say that you and I have the same skill set, but I think that we just found out that we do. Okay, wait, I'll start. Men are rats. Wait, I can't do this with you. <laughs> okay, best memory from the Met Gala on Monday. Best moment. Well, after Met, you know, linking up with Queen Latifah and Regina King and deciding instead of going to the after parties, we were going to just go get pizza. And then we were having antics on the streets <laughs> at 3 a.m. Same, same. What is a sport that you could beat your husband at? Soccer. Okay, favorite film or TV you've done? Being Mary Jane. I, I love it. Finish the sentence. What best describes your workday? Working nine till blank. Five. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. Trying to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. And with that, wow. let's let's get into... Was that the right answer? Like what was Better to- than anyone has ever answered it, honestly. Okay. So you have your new book out, your second memoir, and you described this book as you at your most vulnerable, which is saying something because from reading about you and following your career for years, you're known for your vulnerability and honesty. When did you realize that being vulnerable and your vulnerability could actually be your superpower? It was floated out to me suggestions by my therapist and by a lovely shaman who was like, maybe, maybe stay with me now. What if 
all of these vulnerabilities that you're trying to hide away and quiet and quell because you're afraid if you let them out, they're going to be used against you somehow. What if in talking about those things and letting them free, they are actually your superpowers? And I'm like, that's stupid. And then, you know, life happens and I was presented with an opportunity and I could either be cagey or lie about how I was really feeling and what I was experiencing, or I could tell the truth. And in that moment, I opted for radical transparency and and to just be okay being vulnerable in my truth. And the world opened up. Literally, my whole life changed. And I was like, that was fast. And I just have never looked back since. I don't lose anything by being honest and being open. I gained community and I literally regained my soul. Was there a different process in how you approached being vulnerable with this second book? Well, there were a lot of chapters that I wrote for the first book that I didn't include because I was not ready emotionally, spiritually. I just hadn't been healed enough. There wasn't enough distance. I didn't have enough perspective to go on a press tour and talk about any of those things. So I kind of put them off to the side and, you know, go on the book tour for the first book. And it's a revival, you know, like in the bits that I felt comfortable sharing, people were like, yes, me too. Oh my God, I thought I was losing it. I thought I was alone. Oh my gosh. And you see people turning to strangers in these venues and hugging and crying and finding each other and feeling seen in the moment. And I was like, I got to go back and figure out why I was so afraid of releasing these other chapters. And then a lot of therapy and during the pandemic, extensive therapy. So I started revisiting some of those lost chapters and so much had changed that I I had to, you know, really start from scratch, but it gave me some of the larger themes that I, I wanted to touch upon, but I was ready to leave no stone unturned and to really be radically transparent. And I was ready and it was time. So I had nothing but time during the pandemic and So much was happening in isolation. I was doing extensive therapy twice a week, two hours a day to deal with some of the stuff that was coming up in the process of writing. You shared a lot from toxicity at the workplace to your fertility struggle to things that have happened to you in your past and relationships. Of all of those things, what has been the hardest for you to go public with? I mean, just because of how people react to things, probably the kindness of strippers, that chapter, Talking about explosive diarrhea at a strip club. (laughs) People have a lot to say, turns out. That's so surprising. It made me like you so much more. And we've already established (laughs) that I've always been a fan. But that I was like, this story is, I think, every person's worst nightmare in a sense. Maybe not the strip club, but that feeling that you (laughs) talk. Really? Yeah. Something about that kind of vulnerability, that shitty vulnerability. (laughs) You just know it's so clickbaity. Yeah. You know what I mean? And something that was like just a funny, horrifying story that I absolutely needed to include. You just know it could be picked apart. It's those kinds of things that scare me more than just revealing my truth. My truth is my truth. So how you receive it and what you choose to do with it says everything about you. One of the moments that actually in reading it, I was wondering what the reaction was going to be was around the letter to ISIS, which is so thoughtful and so beautifully written. And also one of the roles that back in the day you're known for and huge kind of cult movie that people love and the reflection on it was so poignant. But were you nervous about 
putting it out there? Or was that a moment that you were like, it's time? No, no. I mean, because we were talking about it a lot last year during the pandemic. It was the 20th anniversary and we were doing a ton of panels. Me, Kirsten Dunst and Peyton Reed and our writer, we were doing panel after panel. And so depending on who was asking the questions, certain things would come up. And what ISIS meant to marginalized communities versus what she meant to other communities. And it brought up a lot of stuff. And I realized I was given complete freedom to shape ISIS into whoever I felt was best, you know, for the character, which is unheard of. That that doesn't really happen. And I opted to make her respectable. And I really muzzled her humanity. When harm is caused... And you don't allow yourself the full reaction to harm caused. It sends a message to to the people causing the harm that it's not that bad. Not that bad. So when they do it again and someone does have a reaction, they're the problem, not you. You know what I mean? And to me, she should have been able to own her anger and her frustration. It shouldn't have been off the table for ISIS to say, are you going to tell the world that you stole from me? Are you going to renounce those past championships? She didn't have a last name. None of the, the Clovers had last names. Every Toro, no matter if you had one line or you were the lead, you know, everyone associated with the Toro squad, how do we know Sparky Pulaski, you know, Pulaski's name, whatever, Torrent Shipman. So at first I was like, oh, Isis. I'm like Madonna. I'm Cher. So I thought it was cool. And, you know, never really thought about like the other cheerleaders having one name. Janelope, Lafred, and even those names are like, hmm. until someone pointed it out during the panel. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't even notice. I never even thought about it until you just said and it. And then someone at, at one of the panels was like, you know, none of your characters in those movies, she's all that, 10 things I hate about you. None of them had last names. Every other character in those movies had last names. I mean, that is kind of dark and very deep. And when you were given full control, I didn't give her a last name. I, I didn't attach her to people, to her community. I had to acknowledge what I did and didn't do. And so, we, of course, we're all talking about a sequel and what that could be. But in order to move forward, I had to go back and acknowledge what I did and didn't do. And I stripped her of her humanity. You know, by the time you get to the end scene where, you know, Torrance is like, you were just better. And Isis is like, we were, huh? Like, bitch, it's not a fucking question. You know that we yeah. were better. And what she yeah. should have been able to say is, yes. When the playing field is truly equal and you had to do your own work, you were not good enough. So sit with that L because that's what you earned. I'm going to go off with my trophy. You know what I mean? And I didn't, I wanted her to be respectful. I wanted her to be the right kind of black leader. I didn't want her to be the angry black woman. I wanted her to be classy. And the thing about classy in the face of abuse and harm and oppression is it lulls everyone into believing that it wasn't that bad and that if you have a bigger reaction, a justifiably bigger reaction to harm caused, that you're the actual problem. Cut to, during the same series of panels and whatnot, these memes are released about, like, movie villains. And ISIS was a villain. I had muzzled her. I had had her shapeshift. I had made her gracious and classy. And she was still a villain. She was a victim. She has to be acknowledged and to be seen and for there to be some accountability and for you to do your own damn work and see how that works out. And for that, she's a villain. I could listen to you talk about this forever. And I'm so glad that you're 
bringing up this reflection and in so many of things that I think many of us who are fans of the movie were blinded to when we watched it originally. And there's so much there why we were blinded to that. We talk a lot on the show around how to stand up for yourself in, in the workplace. And this is obviously a career podcast. And I think what you have done really well is just from watching you from afar is speaking up and think fighting for yourself. But I imagine a lot of people listening can think about a time when they wanted to say something about mistreatment that they felt, injustice that they felt, and they felt like they couldn't. If you could talk to somebody through a moment like that, what would you tell them? I would first, I would say, how badly do you need this job? Because speaking up comes with risk. And when you speak truth to power and you call people to the carpet and you ask for acknowledgement and accountability, you can be the villain, even when you're the victim. And if you are not in any kind of position of power and your family relies on your paycheck, you have to think about how you're going to move. It's very easy to be like, consequences be damned, and you lose your home. You know what I mean? Like you have to be more thoughtful in giving advice because we're not all in a position to to speak truth to power. So I would first ask, how badly do you need this job and can you survive if you get fired? Then have you gone through the proper steps of documenting everything, names, dates, times? And also understand that HR is not there to help you. They are there to protect the company. They are not your friend, but what they do do is document. They have to document it, but you need to document going to HR to insist that they are documenting it. All it is when you go to HR is keeping a record, but understand the second you make a complaint to HR, there will be a target on your back. You have to understand how this works. HR is not there for you. They are there to figure out risk management, liability, and to protect the company. If you opt to continue and you want to really go there, whether that's go public or go to whatever authority in your company to talk about abuse, you have to know all the dirty tricks that will be used to gaslight you, to discredit you, to to malign you. And then all of a sudden, your work will go under this microscope that never existed before, and suddenly you're terrible at your job when you've had glowing recommendations. You have to understand how it works. You'll probably be able to sleep better at night because you've you've released it, and you're in the hope, obviously, of not only protecting yourself but other people, and hoping that you know, in, in, in calling folks to the carpet, that they can evolve and change, and there can be some acknowledgement and accountability. You just have to always be conscientious of the risk. And I wish speaking up didn't come with risks, but they do. And if you are a witness to something, even if you don't want to throw yourself in the fray, if they come to you to corroborate a story, don't lie. It's that simple. Don't lie. Don't lie. I would rather you be quiet and say nothing than say it didn't happen. Don't do that. As we say, let the grown folks work. Like I'll cover you in my sacrificing myself to make this company better and and to improve the work environment. But don't stand in my way trying to protect yourself. You know what I mean? To protect your job. Don't lie for them. Just be quiet. I don't recall. If you can't do the right thing and, and, and say, I saw it, it happened, you know, whatever. It's hard to offer advice because the, the risks are great. I have experienced them. I will never know what my reputation is when I walk in the room. I never know what is whispered about, you know, I'll never know what opportunities 
that I, I might have had, but I'm okay with that. But I'm also coming from a place of, you know, two incomes. And one of those incomes is a lot, you know, it's definitely not the black actress income. So I, I have the luxury of speaking up these days. So it is a treacherous road, but for me, I will never regret speaking up. And, you know, if there's someone in your company that sees you and understands you and is, a, is in an unfireable position who will be your ally, maybe your shield, try to find as many allies as possible, but document everything. Meticulous notes. They will all come in handy. A moment in your book that given it's a career podcast that really stood out to me was the story of your friend negotiating for their place in a film that they had been integral in creating. And the what seemed to be very easy chain of people that they went to next and how you all banded together. Obviously, we are not actresses, but there is, I think, in in a lot of industries, the idea of if you're the woman negotiating for something, if you are a person of color negotiating for something, that there's kind of this formula in a sense. If it's not offered to you, how do you, and, and they need someone in this role. What from that experience do you think could be applicable to people who aren't a Hollywood actress? Because I think that there was so much power in how your entertainment circle handled that moment. I mean, first and foremost, it's, I mean, yes, I use the example of this acting opportunity, but it's, it's about any opportunity. It's about whether you're going to ask for a raise or it's that evaluation time. And it's, it's really about not allowing yourself to be used to lowball another person, to malign anyone else's work, to be used as the threat, you know, that the, the, the carrot to keep someone else in line. And we know when it's happening. We are working people. Just don't, don't participate. Don't participate in it because whatever it is that you think is going to that little, okay, that is that a, is that an opening? No, it's, it's the fuckery that are trying to fuck someone else. Don't participate. And if you do, and you think it's, you're, it's going to lead to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it's fool's gold. And you just made a, a fool of yourself. You showed all your cards by willing to be that person. It will never be worth it. I promise you it'll never be worth it. Whatever karma has for your ass, it's going to come collect in a way that you are not prepared for. It's about working together and being transparent about what you make. I know that we have been raised. You don't talk about money. You don't talk about money. Talk about money. They are banking on you operating in a silo. They are banking on it being gauche to talk about money, whatever. When did you first start talking about money with some of your peers? When, I think it was Jessica Chastain, she was talking about it with Octavia Spencer, whatever situation that was. And then the Michelle Williams pay thing. Those were like the bigger ones. But as Black actresses, there's almost shame involved because we get paid so much less. You know, when those Forbes lists come out about highest paid actors, you're like, oh, I'm a failure. You know, I'm a failure. That's what they're making. And I'm nowhere close, but because black actors don't talk to each other. Then all of a sudden it was like, okay, what did you make on that? You know, based on your, you know, your resume and all these things, like you have to be in the ballpark. Right. And they're like, no, they said you took a million dollars less. I'm like, I I didn't have a million dollars to begin with. They didn't even break seven figures for me. What? And, And how they assume 
right, justifiably, rightly so, that none of us are talking. And that's how they screw each other. Because oh, you'll be the somebody will be the carrot person. Sometimes you don't even know you're the carrot person. They're like, well, Taraji closed it, you know, I'm using fictitious numbers, a million, you know, if you, I mean, otherwise, you know, Taraji's going to take it, you know? And you're like, oh, well, okay, well, 350,000, I, I guess. And Taraji's like, girl, I've made 4 million. And you're like, wait, what? And she's like, why don't you just call me? And I'm like, I, 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 uh. so we got that shit out of the way quick. So we're all like, what are they offering you? Okay. Oh, so, oh, okay. So this studio, they, they do have money. Oh, that, so they're just, this is the bullshit. Okay. Which uh, business, which person in business affairs were you talking to? Okay. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. So you're like, okay, now please tell me again why you're lowballing me based off of nothing, hoping that I'm an idiot. You know what I mean? Like there was a meme yesterday that was like, they know your worth. They just hope you don't know your worth. Really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's so important for, especially for women and all women to hear what you just shared. As our last question there, you know, it's something that I was shocked to read about you, was t- you talking about social anxiety you come off and present as a super confident person. And I think we talk a lot in this show and meeting with a lot of entrepreneurs of people who are like introverted extroverts. Danielle and I talk a lot about that. How the hell do you overcome that in it work? Forget that you, with the very public life that you've chosen, but for those listening that really struggle with it, and then you couple in, you've got to also fight for yourself in the workplace. And if you are a woman of color, you're going to be fighting for yourself doubly as hard. How do you overcome social anxiety at work? Also, I'm going to make it trickier, add in a pandemic. Well, the pandemic, I didn't have to go into work, I, you know, via Zoom. I can turn off my, <laughs> I can turn off my camera if I want to on a Zoom call. So the pandemic actually made it a lot easier. I didn't have to leave my house. You know, like when you think about, you know, for in Hollywood, we might have three or four meetings in a day. Those are like, I have to figure out the, the directions. I have to, you know, navigate the parking garage. I have to figure out if I'm going to interact with people in the elevator. Oh, what if I get lost? Who am I going to ask for help? All of those things, my brain just spins out. And at each stop, it's, oh God, I got to start over. Okay, what if they ask me this? Okay, this is probably what I'm going to say. Like, I literally go through questions that someone might ask. They never ask. And then follow-up questions. And so I feel like I'm like constantly prepared with a pat answer I, I rehearse ordering a pizza from Domino's. Like, what if they ask me something about the crust? I don't know. I got to be prepared. So for me, like, I deal with it by being overly prepared, going places early, not leaving anything to last second, and just, you know, repeating to myself, you're okay. They're probably nervous too. It's okay. It's okay. You can be weird today if that's how you're feeling. You can be who you are, and it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Hi. Hi. Oh, okay. Where are you from? Okay. And that's usually how I, I start every cold call, if you will, every room. Cause it's like the whole of my career are interactions that are not of like my personal choosing. Like I choose my friends. Mm-hmm. I choose, you know, which family members I allow into my home and into my circle. But when you're out in the world and you have to constantly be meeting different people or having interactions that you didn't exactly ask for nor control, it's a whole nother animal. So I just try to give myself grace and time. So I don't add being late to the anxiety of, you know, already nerve wracking experiences. And I just, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. On that note of not making you late. Last question. Who is someone else we should have on this podcast? Ooh, Taraji P. Henson. We've had her. Taraji. We loved it. She's the best. Regina King. 
No, but I would love. Can you make it happen? I can put in a good word. I can put in a good word for you. That that would be great. As a note, we're not getting into this, but just want to uh, thank you for your honesty in your fertility journey. I know a lot of people that read the book, especially the beginning and, and took a lot from it. I appreciate that. And that's why I do what I do. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. 